If you have your Bible, turn to Hosea chapter 3. We are preaching through the book of Hosea, and we find ourselves in the third chapter. And we've spent uh, some time detailing the, the, the coming judgment which was to come on Israel. The fact that God loved His people, even when they were adulterous. If you remember in the first chapter, the, the book begins by proclaiming, God proclaiming, to Hosea, go and take a wife who is a whore. Have children with her. Because my people Israel have been whores with gods of other countries. They are adulterers. Such dooming words for a marriage maybe never have been spoken. From its beginning. And yet Hosea the faithful prophet. Went. And took. Gomer. The daughter of. Nabalim. To be his wife. And we talked about the years they must have shared. You know and they had children. And yet with the birth of every child. Hosea was confident. In the Lord that the day was coming when his wife would forsake their marriage for the love of other men. And he would even bear a child that was not his. His last child was named. You are not my people. And the text seems to indicate to us that at least this last child, if not the other two, are not Hosea's. And yet Hosea was all of their fathers. And we've talked about, we've talked continually about the fact that God is a covenant God. That He has spoken His word to His people and He will keep His word. No matter their unfaithfulness, He will remain faithful. In that first chapter, it becomes easy to get wrapped up and to begin to blame Gomer and to begin to prosecute Gomer. I mean, the trial is simple, isn't it? Any jury would give a conviction for this woman of her sin. And we want to be on the jury in our self-righteous, religious, Christian, moral being. We We want to be on the prosecution team. We want to be In the jury box, we want to holler out, guilty! And then we come to chapter 2. And things don't get better, they get worse. In an age where evangelical churches and pastors are teaching that God's plan for your life is health and wealth and prosperity, we have in contrast the very Word of God which says... Things will go from bad to worse in your life often. We have the very Word of God which says, Some of you will carry a thorn in the flesh all of your life that you may be humble before Me, because in your weakness I'm made strong. We have the testimony of the prophets who lived their entire lives waiting on the Messiah who would come, and He never came. 
in their lifetime. And they were laughed and scoffed at like fools. And sewn into, the book of Hebrews says, and ripped apart by the limb. And beheaded. And starved. And imprisoned. This Johnny-come-lately garbage that the world wants to sell you as the gospel will not stand up to the evidence of Scripture or the Christian life. And some of you are ready to walk away from God because you have bought this hook, line, and sinker. If I go to church, if I pray, if I read my Bible, if I do good things, if I give my money, God will give to me. And now your wife is leaving you, or your husband is cheating on you, or your children are dying and going to hell. Or your business has gone sour, or your house is about to be foreclosed on, and you can't find rhyme or reason of how God is paying you for your good deeds. And may I say... You've believed the false gospel. We often talk about the joy of living in a Christian culture, which is not very Christian any longer. We often brag about our freedom when what we may need is a dose of what the rest of the world has suffered. Humility. Suffering, poverty, sickness, desperation, war. I was thinking just this week as I thought about this passage, nobody enlists in an army that isn't fighting a war. And the Christian army in the United States is by and large not fighting the war. Therefore, those outside the church have no need to sign up. They see no cause. They have no purpose. They view us as nothing more than a middle class, mostly white, conservative country club. While many of them suffer... And the rest of the world dies. And we wonder why they aren't inspired by our lives and by our churches. There's not many Hoseas is what I'm saying. There's not many in our day who say, simply for the glory of God and for His gospel, I will live in the most unimaginable of circumstances so that His gospel may go forward, so that His message might be preached. There's very few of us who will say, God, write on me the picture of Your just mercy. Make me the tapestry which displays Your character. There's not many of us willing to pray that prayer or live that life because it's not an easy life. It's a very difficult life. Hosea had a difficult life. 
And it gets worse from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Not better. And he was obedient. He stayed to the task. And yet, he suffered. And what is it that this book is teaching us? What is it that we're really the central kernel of all of this message that we've been preaching? And I've said it over and over and I'll say it again. The book of Hosea's purpose is to display for us the covenant love of God, the redeeming love of God. The covenant which God has between Himself and His people, both of Israel and the church. That's the purpose of Hosea. And we come to chapter 3. The most breathtaking chapter in the whole Bible. There's nothing that equals this. Nothing. In my opinion, there's no chapter in the Bible, not even the crucifixion of the Lord is told with such pageantry as this chapter. In five short verses, we get a picture that is unmatched in its brilliance, in its glory. And Amado read it, and I hope you followed along. And today we're going to look at this message which comes from this first, this third chapter of Hosea. Before we dive into the text, and we're going to do that, we need to get a little bit of a background because theological language in our days fallen on hard times. Not many people know the language of the Bible anymore. And I don't pretend that everybody in here knows it, nor do I pretend you don't know it, okay? So if you know what I'm about to say, take it as a refresher. If you don't know then this is will give you the background you need for the rest of the message. The idea of redemption is throughout the text of the Scripture. It's Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, the idea of redemption is held at the center of God's work in salvation. There are three, at least three word family groups which talk about the redemption of God. We won't get into the technical words, because I don't know many of you who know Hebrew. (laughs) So that's not necessary. But there are at least three words which tell us of God's redemption. The first word means to redeem. It just means to redeem. That's 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 a broad term. Not very specific. And many people in our day take the word redemption... To mean freedom. To set them free. And there are passages in the scripture that tell us that God does do that in salvation. He sets us free. Okay, that's not a wrong picture of salvation. It's just a partial picture. And what these gentlemen want to deny is the existence of that ne- the next two words in the Old Testament. And that is the kinsman redeemer. And the word which means to redeem at price. They're okay with the fact that God through Christ was setting us free. What they don't want to say is that it cost him. That he actually paid for our salvation. Because if you believe that God paid for our salvation, then you must mean That he held us in debt. You must mean that 
without that payment, not only would we suffer in this life, but we would suffer for eternity in hell because the price went unpaid. Therefore, someone had to pay it. You would have to hold to a doctrine which teaches that God is both just and loving. And our world doesn't like that picture of God. They just want the loving Santa Claus God who jumps every time they snap their fingers and gives them such good gifts. I've begun to think we need to stop talking about for just a little while, we need to stop talking about the gifts God gives us. We need to always thank Him for Him. But the first thing we tell lost people, unfortunately, is you're a sinner, and if you want good things, come to Jesus. And what we need to say is you're a sinner. If you don't come to Jesus, you're going to pay a price. And that price is eternity in hell because God is just. Too busy cleaning up the gospel, making it blood free, and making it beautiful. We need to just step back and begin to paint the full picture. Is it wrong to glory in God and His gifts? No. But we're worshiping the gift, not the giver. Be honest with yourself. Most of the time, you're not bragging on God, you're sickly bragging on yourself. Because what you think is, the reason i got to raise, the reason I've got the house I've got, the reason my children are all healthy, wealthy, and wise is because I'm a good person and God owed me. We need to stop that foolishness and start saying, you know what, if you come to Jesus, you may lose your job and your children may curse the day you were born and your wife may walk out on you and you may lose every friend you've got in the world. But you'll have Jesus, and He's enough. That's the picture. That's the picture of Hosea chapter 3. Not that it was happy and fun and lively around Hosea's house, but that it was unhappy. It was miserable for her and for him. And yet, God said, love her anyway. Because I still love my people. We need to get back in our theology the idea of redemption, which is not only setting us free, it is that, but it's more. At a price, he set us free. That price was paid to God to satisfy his just wrath against us for being sinners. So we have that in the Old Testament. And just for reference that you can look up later, we might think of Ruth. God willing, in the future, Dave will preach a full message series on the book of Ruth. It will be coming after we finish John. We're going to finish Hosea, go to John, and then Dave's going to preach Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. You might just read through it sometime. Did you know that in God's law, he set up the, the idea of redeeming someone at price? It costs you something. If your brother died... 
his wife, without an heir, his wife was to be redeemed so that he might have a blood heir. And so a younger brother would marry the wife and the firstborn of that marriage would be named for the older brother and would carry on his line. If you were in debt and had to sell your property to get out of debt, in the year of Jubilee, you were to be redeemed. Either by your own price, you paid it, or a kinsman paid it for you so that you could receive back your promise of the land. If your ox got out of the fence and went down the road and gored a man's servant, the book of the law provides for that servant's family and for the owner of that servant. If it was proven that you were in neglect, you could be killed. But because that didn't really pay anybody back, God established a system whereby the offending party was ransomed or redeemed by price, agreed on by the one who had been offended. In other words, the man who lost the servant and his family would say, that man was worth 30 pieces of silver to me and two ox. And the man whose ox got out of the fence would pay the 30 pieces of silver and the two oxen to redeem himself. Okay? And so in redemption, as it pertains to you and I, there was a price. We had been the offender. We're sinners. Okay? We're born that way. Our very existence is a rebellion against God when we're born. God set the price to satisfy His just wrath. And that price has to be paid. And it can either be paid by you. You can choose that route, that payment plan. And the condition is eternity in separation and suffering for the sin which you have committed against a holy God. It's called hell. It's a real place, not a Greek mythology. And many real people will be there and are already locked away for that punishment. You can choose that payment plan. That is free to you for the moment and costly for eternity. But there's a second payment plan in this redemption, which God established. He said, the price for your uncleanness is the blood of my only son. Redemption is costly. Costly to God. And free for all who believe. That's the picture of Hosea 3. That's what we're going to be talking about. You've got the background now. If you want the cool Hebrew words, come see me afterwards. I'll give them to you.
But it's not just an Old Testament idea. It's a New Testament idea. The word luo in the Greek means redeem. And a whole realm of words was established to paint the picture of redeeming something at price. Okay? And that's in the New Testament. So the idea of redemption is from beginning to end in the Scripture. Now that we've got the background laid, we can actually have the sermon. Go again, Hosea. Love a woman who's loved by another man. And is an adulteress. This is a parable of marriage. The parable of marriage exists even to our day. Most of our congregation lives this parable every day. Parables are earthly realities that point to heavenly realities. That's why it's safe to call marriage a parable. Because marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is not eternal. When you die, your marriage ends. You won't be living with your spouse in heaven. Marriage is temporary. Marriage is a copy. Marriage is beautiful. It's not ultimate. It's not eternal. But it's a copy. And it's beautiful. And what is it a copy of? Well, in Hosea's case, remember the story, right? Hosea is a single man. He's called to be a prophet, and he's told to go marry a prostitute, someone who would be a whore. And so his marriage parable begins that way. I said, and I will say again, this is not God's statement for your life. This is God's statement for Hosea's life. Therefore, all you young men who are unmarried, this is not marriage advice from God. There are plenty of Scripture which teach us to be wise in our choice of who our life partner is. Okay. So, so don't leave and say, well, I got a word from God in church today. If you did, you need to, as John said, test the spirits for you don't know whether they come from. And that's an evil one. This isn't God's word to all men of all time. This is God's word to Hosea, but it does not lessen the fact that God told Hosea to do it. It makes it more important. It should make our ears perk up to hear a statement like, Go marry a woman who's an adulteress. What? What are you doing, God? I wouldn't even tell my own kid to do something like that. And I'm an evil father. And you're a good father. What are you doing? God is painting a picture. The picture is marriage and the relationship between a husband and a wife 
which pictures for us the relationship Christ has with his church, God has with his people. Okay? Now, that picture didn't start in Hosea. That picture started in Genesis chapter 2. When God said, it is not good for man to be alone, he then brought every animal that he had created before Adam, and Adam named all of the animals, which gave him, by the way, dominion over them, rulership or leadership over them. And Adam looked at God and said, none of these animals fit me. We won't go any further. You get the idea. These animals weren't made for me. And then God put Adam into a sleep and created from him, from his side, a woman. And when he woke up, the parable of marriage began. He said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is a woman. And that's an exalted title, by the way. She came out of man. Adam was enthralled. His heart did funny things. His desires began to grow as he thought about this woman. She's Eve, the mother of all mankind. And God then says, for this reason, a man shall leave mother and father and cleave to his wife. How do we know God said that? Because Jesus in Matthew 19, when questioned about divorce, says it was not that way in the beginning. Divorce wasn't existed in the beginning. For in the beginning, God said, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife And the two shall become one flesh. That's the repeating of Genesis 2. And notice what Jesus says. Not to devalue marriage, but to exalt marriage, he says. And what God has joined together, let no man separate it. Jesus said, marriage is a high thing, and yet I will exalt it higher. And all the disciples said, if that's how it is, Lord... Who should get married? And Jesus said, paraphrase, but true to the text, marriage is difficult. And everybody can't live this way. Therefore, some are eunuchs by God. Some are eunuchs because they've made themselves eunuchs. And some are eunuchs because others have made them eunuchs. They're single. And so marriage from Genesis to Matthew to then Revelation 19 is a picture of God's relationship with his people. Hosea is just in the flow of that picture. He's in the middle He's not at the beginning or the end. He's in the middle. The parable of marriage stands from Genesis to Revelation. And what's the picture for us in Hosea? 
that I've been bragging about so much and saying it's the most beautiful picture. Well, you would find yourself in the town square of Samaria. It's early in the morning, and a crowd's already gathered. Because today's a special day in the marketplace. People haven't come to buy food for the day or oxen to help them in their labor. People have come to Samaria on this day to purchase for themselves slaves. Slaves are invaluable to the economy of Israel. Hosea, go and take your wife. And so Hosea goes to the town square. And he stands with the men of the town as slave after slave is sold. And the way these auctions go, just because y'all have never been there, and I have, but I want you to go there. The best man goes first. The most physically fit man always went first. And then they went down in order of value. All of the men were sold today. Brought pretty good price. Average of 30 pieces of silver. Which was common for our day. To buy a slave. And then the auction would have transitioned. And we would have began to buy maidservants. Female slaves. And across the stage came woman after woman. Until. Hosea lays a highs. On his bride. And the auctioneer says, fellas, she's worn and used. She's aging. Wrinkles have begun to form. But you got to even sell the bad at an auction like this. So let's start the bidding. Is anybody willing to give us ten pieces of silver? Next to Hosea, a wisecrack is made about this woman who obviously has spread her wares across the city and been used many times and abused. I'll pay ten ten, ten shackles of silver. And Hosea instinctively says, Eleven. The voice is kind of familiar, so everybody looks and is appalled. 
Because everybody there knows that's Hosea's wife. Thirteen pieces of silver. Hosea says fifteen. The auctioneer says, The bin's good, you better get in. Fifteen pieces of silver and five bushels of wheat. Fifteen shekels and nine, Hosea says. Far below the average price. Worthless in the eyes of the other men. They say, if that poor old man wants to buy his own wife, let him have her. Who wants her anyway? And the auction comes to a close and Hosea, head held high, walks to the auctioneer and pays his price. And out of his sack, he pulls a rope. And he closes her. Because these slaves are not sold, clothed. They're sold naked. So that there can be no mistake as to what you're buying. Hosea takes his personal robe after paying his hard-earned money and his next week's food. He takes his personal robe and puts it on this filthy, despicable, Adulterous woman. And he leads her home. Well, you can imagine Gomer's shock and surprise that Hosea would want her. And the fear that rose in her heart. Because you see, when you buy a slave, you can do whatever you want to do to that slave. She could have been purchased by some fine woman in town who made her do her bidding and wash her clothes and cook her meals. She could have been bought by a man at this auction for sexual purposes. And she knew that, and she had no rights. And she knew that because Hosea bought her, he could take her and stone her to death and nobody could stop him. You can imagine the embarrassment, the fear, and the desperation in Gomer. And when they come in, he says, I just imagine this scene over and over. You know where our bedroom is. Put your things down. There's only one rule I have in this relationship. You're mine. No longer do you belong to the men of this village. No longer do you have the right 
to give yourself to anybody except me. And I will love you until the day I die. I will provide for you every need that may arise. I will give to you every right, not as a slave, but as a wife. I love you, Gomer, with an everlasting love that will never fail. And that's the parable of marriage. And it has implications for you and for me. And so I want to get to those quickly. First of all, as Christians, marriage is lifelong. Lifelong. Secondly, in Christian marriages even, divorce occurs. Jesus said that much in Matthew 19. It is not God's desire, heart's desire, His emotion for you. It's not what He wants for you. But it very often is in His plan for you. And so it does occur. Third, when it occurs, it is always sin. There are no exceptions to that. Fourth, The partner who is offended in the marriage is not released from the bond of the covenant which God has established over that home. Okay? They're not released. You say, I can't be happy in this marriage. God never promised. God never promised happiness in any area of our life. Well, if my wife left me or my husband left me, I can't be single. I can't do it. By the grace of God, you can't. And we are told in 1 Corinthians 7 that great things can come out of that. Like the kingdom of God moves to the forefront and the mission of the church is forwarded even by wrecked marriages. If you want your marriage to be a parable of the gospel, you therefore must remain faithful even when the other partner is not faithful, is what I'm saying. And until they die, you treat them as your husband or your wife. What do I do if they've left me? First of all, you do not force them to stay with you. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7. There may be a season where they leave and there's nothing you can do about it. And Paul says, let them go. Secondly, you are then to enter into prayer that they return and repent. And third, your singleness 
Your singleness, though it won't bring you maybe happiness, will bring you the joy of knowing that the kingdom, the kingdom, the gospel is being folded. And finally, may I say, marriage is not ultimate, but God's glory is. So when you're deciding what to do, always I think it is safe to go the route of conservatively saying, I know this displays God's glory. I'm not certain if that does down there, but I know this does. Therefore, I will do this. In other words, the parable lasts as long as the parties in the parable live When they die, it is finished. Now, you may think, that's easy for you to say. You have a beautiful wife who's faithful and loves you. You have beautiful children and all is well in your house. First, you might not ought to assume that all is well in our house. We often get into skirmishes, the two of us. All is not well all the time. In other words, our marriage is not perfect. Neither is yours, I'm sure. Although I do admit yours may be much worse than mine, by the grace of God, I've been given a wonderful wife. So you say, what gives you the right to speak on this subject? Well, first of all, it's in the Word of God, I believe. And second of all, I am not divorced, but I am the child of divorce. I've seen it firsthand. My mother is in her third marriage. And there's been many good things that have come out of those marriages. But she has two husbands on the earth. Her first husband's dead. Her second husband lives in Chattanooga. Her third lives with her in Columbus. And so there's confusion for the child and for the community. You say, that's not very hopeful. I'm already divorced. I'm already remarried. That's why we finished the sermon not on marriage but on the picture which marriage paints. You see, we've talked about the parable of marriage, and now I want to talk about the promise to Israel. Because you may be sitting there in a heap of guilt right now because you're divorced and you're remarried, and you say, okay, all this is done. I'm finished. I'm no good. No. You're Gomer with the rest of us. Because there was a promise made to Israel. You shall live under the king. And you shall inherit the land. There's a promise made to Israel. And Israel's unfaithfulness and failure and sin did not revoke the promise. 
And so what I'm saying to you, whatever state you're in, single, married, divorced, divorced and remarried, whatever, wherever you are, we are all Gomer. Divorce is a sin, but it is not a sin tantamount to God revoking His promises. It is a sin like my sin of lying, of half-hearted worship, of idolatrous love for things that are not God, but I treat them as God. It's equal with them. And if you're divorced and remarried, God never revokes His promises. And your marriage currently can paint the picture of the gospel. There's hope in the future, in other words. You're not totally cut off. Let's look at this promise to Israel. We see it in verses 4 through 5. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. In other words, they're going to come back to me and they're not going to have any of these other gods before me. They're not going to have any mode of worship. No prince, no king, no sacrifice, no ephod, no idol in the home. Nothing. They'll have nothing except me and Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God. And David, wait a minute, David's dead. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. And David, their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to the goodness, and to his goodness in the latter days. In other words, let me tell you this. God made promises to Israel which he still has not revoked. And though the church is grafted into Israel, therefore we can be called the spiritual Israel, it does not replace the fact that at the end of time, God will gather a large number of Israelites to Himself. And they will have Christ as their King. In other words, the picture is not complete yet. God is not finished yet. He's still working. And so you, as a divorced person, may say, I have no further life. I've failed. I'm no good. No! God is still working. Your sin is forgiven in Christ. And now you have hope for the future. I'm divorced and remarried. Therefore, I'm disqualified from everything. No! Absolutely not. Well, then why did you tell us not to get get remarried? You don't believe we should get remarried? Because... It's the difference in telling my child at the beginning, don't do a a thing, whatever it is, take the candy from the candy dish, and then them going and taking the candy and me disciplining them. That doesn't change the fact they're still my child. I love them. There's forgiveness. There's reestablishment. I'm on the front end for you married folks saying don't get divorced. And for those who have been divorced, there is forgiveness. And for those who've been divorced and remarried, there's not only forgiveness, but you're still useful to the kingdom of God. It can't be that complicated. And I know you say, that's not what we believe. That's not what we've been taught. That's not what our culture gives to us. No, it's not. 
But I do believe it is faithful. And I think it's hard. And I think by the grace of God, Grace Fellowship can live this parable. I believe we can. All of us. Single, married, divorced, and re- divorced and remarried. All of us can live the parable. We're not cut off. He's kept his promises. How did he keep his promises to Israel? Well, they did suffer through a period with no kings. And then Ezra and Nehemiah came and they reestablished Jerusalem. And they reestablished worship. And the bloodline of David was reestablished for them. There was no king on the throne, but they rightly knew there was an heir. Ultimately, the promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We move forward in time. God's redemptive promise to Israel was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because, see, he was put to the test like Adam in Matthew chapter 4. Satan came to him in the wilderness and said, Turn these stones into bread. And he said, you man shall not live by bread alone. Cast yourself down from the highest point of the temple. And he said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. Well, look at all the kingdoms of the world. If you'll follow me, I'll give you these things. And he said, Get behind me, Satan. You say, What's the parallel between Adam and Christ? Adam was tempted and failed. Christ, the second Adam, was tempted and overcame the temptation and remained holy. Therefore, from that point forward... He was the holy representative of all who would believe in Him. His life was actively righteous on our behalf until He was nailed to the cross and died. Obedience led to death, led to resurrection. There's hope. You see, the promise to Israel is fulfilled in Israel. It's fulfilled in Christ. God kept His word to Israel in Christ. Christ is Israel. Christ is Israel. And it is fulfilled in us. We go a little further. Because after the resurrection, the church is established. And God has kept His promise and His word. We are looking for David, the king. And before the king comes, hear this. Romans 11 clearly teaches us that there will be a large ingathering of Israel. I do not believe there will be a new Israeli state landmass which all of us will go live in and serve in a temple made with hands. I don't believe that. But I do believe the ethnic Israelites who are hardened against the gospel for the most part today will have their blinders removed and their hard hearts melted and they will turn in mass to Jesus Christ. I do not doubt the fact that some generation of Christians will wake up to the headline news, a revival has struck Israel. Thousands of Jewish people have now turned to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I believe it. As sure as I'm standing here, it will happen. God keeps His promises. Of redemption. So we have the promise to Israel. And then we have the price. The price. Of redemption. The price of redemption. And we close here. Because I've talked about the parable of marriage. And therefore we all have a practical duty. I call it a duty. It's a joy. If you are married today. Whatever it is. First, second, third marriage. Whatever it is. 
Your marriage needs to be a picture of the gospel. Must be. You're called to it. Promise to Israel and then price of our redemption. What is the price of our redemption? Where does all of this take us? You know, in my studies of uh, Hosea, I've come face to face with the fact that Peter, this must have been Peter's favorite book. What did it cost for us to be the children of God? What did it cost? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 says, Peter writing, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You will suffer through a period, Israel, where you have no king. And you have no temple. Through your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver and gold. But with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But was made manifest in the last time for your sake who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter, I believe, had Hosea in his mind. Because that scene of Hosea buying his wife Gomer is the scene of our salvation. You see, before the foundation of the world, God, the auctioneer, Brought a bride, dirty and naked and adulterous and unworthy and full of spots and blemishes before heaven. And he said, who will pay for this bride? Satan sneered. Worthless. Who wants that thing? Despicable. Nobody will buy that. Used and worn and tattered and wrinkled and no good. Who would want that? His mocking voice rang out as the accuser of that bride. Pitiful. Worthless. Blamed. Adulterer wrinkled, spotted, worthless. Throughout the hall of heaven. And then one rose to say, I will pay. I will pay the price of my blood. I will give eye for eye, tooth for tooth, flesh for flesh, blood for blood. 
she shall be my bride. To which the angels thought, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And as he stepped forward to claim his bride, he took his blood and covered the wrath of God. And he pulled from his own back robes of righteousness. He said, you'll no longer be naked. She'll no longer be wrinkled. But I will present you to myself spotless, without wrinkle, covered in the robes of righteousness, which are mine. And then he led his bride away. Not to humiliate her or punish her, but to sit her in the seat of honor. And he said, eat and drink. Eat and drink. I'm telling you, whoever you are and whatever you've done, the price of redemption is either your blood for eternity or Christ's blood from the cross. You're either in the bride or bound to hell. How can you be saved? By clinging to the one who paid the price. I'm telling you, if you're here without Christ, His arm is not short. To save you. He can. And he does save. And the price of your salvation is not too much. Because he's paid it. And so what I'm calling from you. to What I'm calling on you to do. Is place yourself in him. To say. I have nothing to offer. Naked and wrinkled and blemished as I am, I come. And he says, everyone who comes, he will by no means cast them out. I'm begging you to come to this Savior, this Redeemer, this one, this husband who has paid the price for you. I'm begging you to come to Him and find full forgiveness and find full assurance of your salvation. And I'm saying to you, bride, where you're still wrinkled and spotted and blemished, He will make you perfect. He will not fail to make you perfect. So if you sit in condemnation 
It's personal condemnation. It is not from Him. And if you sit in a state of immobility because you say, I'm a sinner and I can't do anything for God, that's a lie. You can simply claim the promise and live by it. I'm begging you to come and I'm saying if you come and you have come in the past, if you come today, if you've come in the past, there is nothing that you can do to separate you from the love of God. I don't care what your sin is. It doesn't matter. And I'm saying come to the only hope the world has. Because you may be here under a weight of guilt and I may have hit the sin that you suffer the most with. You may be suffering from what I've talked about. The hope is Christ. The hope is the future. The hope is no matter whether you're in marriage or outside of marriage or in your second marriage, His promises are unchanged. And so from today you can commit that your marriage be the picture of the gospel. Today you can make that commitment. There's a lot to think about, a lot to to contemplate from a message like this. So I want to give you that time. We're going to listen to a song, just a a song, an instrumental. This is not your classic altar call. This is not come down and tell the priest your sins, any of those things. But you do have a priest in heaven. And he waits for you to confess your sins that he might forgive them. And so during this meditation, I'm not asking you to come forward, sign a card, kneel at an altar. Though you can kneel at the altar if you choose. It's open. But I'm opening up to you to just say, think on these things. Let the message take root and apply into your life. And speak with your priest in heaven. Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man. So Cody's going to play the song. At the end of the song, I'll come back and close the service. Cody.